0: The Lord be with you, and also with you. Lift up your hearts, and lift to the Lord. For the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west, and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south, and the transcendent power of love touches earth in the humility of God's presence. We gather in this powerful, poignant hour for ordered Worship, And we say a word of welcome, personal to you, whether you're from the region, the city, the university, the school, the chapel, or the neighborhood. Marsh Chapel welcomes you. Its gothic nave built to last and to lift the spirit welcomes you. Its conic stained glass with the people on the top and the places on the bottom, vocation over location, welcomes you. Its long history of love of word and music, as in tonight, welcomes you. Its witness here at the spiritual and architectural and geographic and historic center of our beloved Boston University welcomes you. And especially tonight, the reverberations, the echoes, the remembrances of the words that brought us to this place and that were uttered by those who went from this place. Do all the good you can at all the times you can. Unite the pair, so long disjoined knowledge and vital piety. Live in the heart of the city, in the service of the city, in learning and virtue and piety. Are ye able, said the Master, people, all people, belong to one another in the search for common ground. And just now in a, a whisper, an echo, moral arc of the universe, a dream that one day content of character sit down at the table of brotherhood free at last free at last thank god almighty free at last god of our weary years god of our silent tears thou hast brought us thus far along the way thou hast by thy might led us into the light Keep us forever in the path, we pray. Grace us with your presence, we ask, in this numinous evening twilight hour. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
1: Pray together. Almighty God, who created us in your image, grant us grace faithlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom. Help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice in our communities and among the nations. To the glory of your holy name, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Please join me in reading responsively, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear through the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city, which shall not be moved. God will help it at the dawn of the day. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, God's voice resounds, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth, who makes war cease to the end of the earth, breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge.
2: A lesson from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his degree came, There was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maid and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hattach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hattach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hattach and gave him a message for Mordecai saying, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds on to the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king's for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will arise from the, for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your families, you and your father's families will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a moment, for such a time as this.
0: Such a time as this, we have the gift as our preacher tonight of the Reverend Cornell William Brooks, an activist, attorney, and fourth generation ordained minister. He currently serves as visiting professor of social ethics, law, and justice movements with dual appointments to Boston University School of Theology and Boston University School of Law. He previously served as the 18th president and CEO of the NAACP. President and CEO of the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice and Senior Counsel and Special Counsel as well as Acting Director of the Office of Communication Business Opportunities of the Federal Communications Commission. Early in his career, Reverend Brooks served as Trial Attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice, Executive Director of the Fair Housing Council of Greater Washington, Staff Attorney for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Judicial Clerk for Chief Judge Sam J. Urban III, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Reverend Brooks is also a Senior Fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice, Visiting Fellow, Harvard Institute of Politics, Visiting Scholar, Yale Law School, and Regular Contributor for CNN. He holds a BA, Jackson State University, a Master of Divinity, Boston University School of Theology, and a J.D. Yale Law School. He has also been awarded several honorary doctorates. He is the grateful husband of Janice Broom Brooks and proud father of two sons. That is, he is a multi-talented gentleman, Christian gentleman, who can be a teacher and an activist, who can be a husband and a father, who can be a preacher and a lawyer, who can know the back roads of grace and the blue highways of law, but for all that this past year, for those of us who have had the privilege of working alongside him, he has simply become known as friend. Will you give a warm Marsh Chapel welcome to our preacher for this auspicious evening, Cornell William Brooks.
1: my Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel?
3: Brothers and sisters, if at this moment you are experiencing unusual palpitations of the heart, if by chance you're experiencing arrhythmic breathing uh, and elevated blood pressure, do not worry. You're simply in the presence of God's spirit, God's people, and in God's house. And so if you think it not robbery, I ask that you put your hands together for this extraordinary choir, this extraordinary staff, and this extraordinary team at this chapel led by our dean. To the president of the university, faculty, the staff, most importantly, the students. We find ourselves this evening assembled at Boston University in the historic Marsh Chapel, only a few feet away from the Boston University School of Theology, once derided, now renowned, as the school of the prophets. We find ourselves at this morally peculiar, ethically befuddling moment in history, 50 years distant from the death of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We find ourselves at this moment in history, amidst a circadian rhythm between evening and day, waking and sleeping. We find ourselves at a peculiar moment in history, 50 years after America's most prominent apostle of nonviolence was laid to rest by an assassin's bullet. We find ourselves in the midst of an era of gun violence, 50 years after Dr. King petitioned the Memphis City Council to stand on the side of right, to stand on the side of the sanitation workers, to stand on the side of justice with a vote for justice, we find ourselves in the midst of an era of voter suppression. 50 years after Martin Luther King, on March 28th, led what was supposed to be a peaceful, nonviolent march that disintegrated into a violent melee in which 60 people were injured, a 16 year old was killed, the National Guard was called up to the tune of 4,000 guardsmen. We find ourselves today in the midst of an era of violence in which the hate crime rate has escalated upward. We find ourselves at a moment in history where many are despairing about the level of violence in our country, about the depth of divisions in our country, about the breadth of discord in our country. We find ourselves at a moral moment in which the teachings of Dr. King are all the more urgent, all the more relevant, all the more important, and we yet understand on this occasion, on this day, that the legacy of Dr. King is not a matter of inheritance, but instruction. We can't pass it down. We have to teach it. And so this evening, Amidst this circadian rhythm of sleeping and waking, night and day, calamity and chaos, I direct your attention to a small portion of scripture found in the book of Esther. And I would but lift up a few verses, namely verses 13 and 14. The word of the Lord reading thusly. And Mordecai told them to answer, Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? Yet who knows that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows that you've come to the kingdom, to this royal place, for such a time as this? In the midst of this moral moment, in the midst of this uncomfortable period of history, the question that reverberates down the corridors of time, that morally resonates within our hearts, who knows that we've come to this royal position, this royal place for such a time as this. And if, by chance, you're wondering what is the theme that undergirds this text and speaks to this occasion, it is quite simply this woke and dreaming, woke and dreaming, woke and dreaming. In the course of my travels across the length and breadth of our Republic, from Ferguson to Flint, from Chicago to Staten Island, from Baton Rouge to Minneapolis, from one police shooting to another police shooting. From one place of voter suppression to another place of voter suppression. From one community deeply divided by race and ethnicity and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and misogyny to another. Over and over and over again, I've heard a generation of millennials and Gen Xers in the midst of this Twitter age civil rights movement challenge one another to be woke. That is to say, to be aware, to be conscious, to be in tune with our times. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, speaking across the ages, across the expanse of time, into this moment, into this hour, into these days, in the midst of our history, our times, is, it, is challenging us to be woke, to be aware, to be conscious. you recall that Dr. King lifted up a bit of literature as a political and moral parable. He lifted up the story of Rip Van Winkle who went up to a mountain to escape a nagging spouse and fell into a narcoleptic nap for 20 years. The story tells us that when Rip woke up, he came down the mountain and discovered that the sign he saw on the way up the mountain which rendered King George of England, had been replaced with a sign that rendered George Washington. Rip Van Winkle slept through a revolution. Martin Luther King yet asserts, through the eloquence of his example, that we dare not sleep through a revolution when we see children huddling under their desks in Parkland and on the south side of Chicago, when we see women cowering under the threat of misogyny in the workplace, when we see trans folk afraid of being kicked out of a military where they're trying to serve the country they love, when we see black lives being demattered and devalued on a regular and recurring basis, Martin is yet saying to us, wake up! Don't sleep through a revolution. Whether you call your revolution Me Too, or March for Our Lives, or the Movement for Black Lives, or the Movement for Voting Rights, or the Movement for the Rights of the LGBTQ community, however you define your revolution, The revolution is not ultimately American. The revolution is not ultimately political. The revolution is not ultimately civic. The revolution is profoundly moral and ethical, and it goes to the heart of who we are, namely God's children. When Martin stood on the mall and described not the legal intricacies of a proposed voting rights act or the nuances of a proposed civil rights act or even a fair housing act, but spoke prophetically, presciently, powerfully about a dream. Martin was speaking to a narcoleptic nation about a dream. And for those of you who are post-Civil Rights era, post the Second Reconstruction, may I say to you that dreams are powerful. They are morally disruptive. They unsettle the circadian rhythm of our times. That is sleeping and waking, waking and sleeping. You recall Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman is a young girl who was standing near her master. When her master threw a heavy weight at a slave, an adult male or adult man. This weight hit her in the head with such physical velocity. It left a scar as ugly, as deep, as demeaning, as, as as the brand of a slave owner. But the weight thrown by her master altered her physiological condition, altered her sense of dreaming and waking because thereafter her dreams took on a certain moral urgency. She would find herself in the midst of of, of frenzied activity Leading slaves to freedom when she would be overwhelmed, overcome with the need to fall asleep. But in her sleeping moments, her dreams would trouble her. Her dreams would leave her restless. Her dreams would disrupt the complacency of the hour. Because of her dreams, she was able to lead hundreds to freedom. God spoke to her in her dreams. Likewise, when Martin stood on the mall, God was speaking to him amidst his dreams. He yet speaks to us. Who knows that you've come to this royal position, this royal place, for such a time as this? The wealthiest nation on the face of the globe. Who knows? that you've come to these shores for such a time as this. Boston University, a leading research institution, who knows that you've come to this place for such a time as this. Marsh Chapel, this oasis of comfort and sustenance and power, who knows that you come to this place for such a time as this. Boston University School of Theology, the School of the Prophets, who knows that you've come to this place for such a time as this. Martin, like Haman, was aware that that there's certain evil individuals in our midst. The king in those biblical times was stirred on by an evil man by the name of Haman. Haman translated and transliterated his homicidal hatred of Mordecai into a genocidal plot against the Jewish people. How many of you know when you have 950 to 1,000 people being killed at the hands of the police, many unlawfully and unconstitutionally, it feels like a homicidal plot? How many of you know that when you have voter suppression taking place 50 years after Martin died, years after the Voting Rights Act, how many of you know that that feels like a genocidal plot? How many of you know that when you have gay folk walking around and you have high officials, as high as the White House, demeaning them, degrading them, dehumanizing them, how many of you know? plot. But Haman, or rather Mordecai, not fearful, not quivering, not asleep, sends a message to Esther in the midst of her royal comfort, in the midst of her palatial ease. Who knows that you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. Martin, through his dream, is speaking to us. But may I remind you, dreams have power even in the midst of nightmares. You recall that Martin spoke on the mall, but do you also recall in the last year of his life, he was besieged by his enemies round about, he was not particularly popular. you recall that when he went to Memphis, he was summoned to encourage, then asked to stay, requested to lead a march, and then when the march went south, the people called him a coward. They called him to question the moral efficacy of nonviolence. But his dream still speaks to us. And so, on this anniversary, We are not despairing. We're not depressed. We're not inclined to give up or give in or give over. We are the heirs of the dream. Unless you think that I'm engaging in some kind of moral and imaginary excursion, may I remind you that the granddaughter of Martin Luther King stood in Washington and spoke to the nation. May I remind you That the grandchildren of Martin Luther King, of every hue and every heritage, of every color and every caste, are yet speaking to the nation. May I remind you that Dr. King's grandchildren and great-grandchildren all across the nation are standing in his lineage and his legacy. And they're yet asking us, who knows? that You've come to this royal position for such a time. Woke, but dreaming. Woke about the fact that a young black man is 21 times more likely to lose his life at the hands of the police than his white counterpart. But dreaming of a day when we transform racial battlegrounds into pristine playgrounds where all of God's children can laugh, play, and sing red, yellow, black, brown, and white. We're all, all, all precious in God's sight. Woke but dreaming all the day when straight folk and gay folk, trans folk and bi folk, black folk and white folk, Latino folk and Asian folk, immigrant born and native born understand that this country is our heir, not because of our citizenship papers, but because we are children of God. Woke, but dreaming, because we understand that Martin's philosophy of nonviolence was predicated on the Imago Dei. That is to say that we are all created in the image of God and as such have innate worth, inherent value. The Imago Dei animating his philosophy of nonviolence. The Imago Dei animating the American Declaration of Independence that yet asserts that we have inalienable rights based on the fact that we are God's children and the moral anthem, Black Lives Matter, which is the moral predicate to the ethical conclusion that all lives matter. Unless the first is true, the second will never be true. Whoa, but mean So if by chance there's some hand-wringing pessimist that's managed to make his way into the sanctuary, I want you to remind them that we have no intention of falling asleep. We have no intention of sleeping through this revolution. We have no intention of slipping into a narcoleptic nap. We have no intention of giving over to a coma. We are woke, but dreamy.
4: Let us pray, God of creation, God of the oppressed, God of justice, we bow before you full of wonder, praise, adoration, along with our weariness and our tears. Today, as we pause to remember your servant, Reverend King, we also pause to remember our ancestors, who also fought and died to change the world for us. In those days of trampled darkness, of Birmingham jails, of speaking of racial and economic justice, even when it fell on deaf ears, God was with you as God is with us now to continue to carry on the journey. We ask that you wash our spirit when we forget where we came from and are tempted in our own blindness to join the bandwagon of complacency. Forgive us when we look down on one another and forget to hold out a hand to lift up another. Forgive us when through our entitlement we make the other invents invisible we give you thanks lord god for bringing dr king among us we give you thanks for those who have been inspired by his words the teachers and leaders friends and families even the in- enemies who have helped shape us we thank you for the trials and tribulations that we have experienced that encourage us to be humble and flexible We thank you for those moments on the mountaintop and for the strength to come down from the mountain renewed with love, compassion, unity, and truth. Renew us and keep us awake and dreaming in our struggle for justice and equality, not only by lip service, but by doing the deep work of transformation with our hands and our hearts. And now bless us with the breath of life as spiritual food for the journey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we praise and exalt your name forever. Amen.
5: Friends, My name is Brother Larry Whitney, I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel. Who am I to offer you a blessing on such an occasion as this? No one but a vessel for words from Dr. King himself. From a sermon preached on Palm Sunday 1959 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Reflecting on the life and legacy of Mahatma Gandhi who was killed 11 years prior to that day, 20 years prior to King's own assassination, and 70 years ago now. Let us be attentive. The world doesn't like people like Gandhi. That's strange, isn't it? They don't like people like Christ. They don't like people like Abraham Lincoln. They kill them. One of his fellow Hindus felt that he was a little too favorable toward the Muslims, felt that he was giving in a little too much toward the Muslims. One of his fellow Hindus shot him. And here was a man of nonviolence falling at the hand of a man of violence. Here was a man of love, falling at the hands of a man of hate. This seems the way of history. But thank God it never stops here. Thank God Good Friday is never the end. And the man who shot Gandhi only shot him into the hearts of humanity. And just as when Abraham Lincoln was shot, mark you, for the same reason that Mahatma Gandhi was shot, that is, the attempt to heal the wounds of a divided nation. When the great leader Abraham Lincoln was shot, Secretary Stanton stood by the body of this leader and said, now he belongs to the ages. And the same can be said about Mahatma Gandhi now. He belongs to the ages. And he belongs especially to this age, an age drifting once more to its doom. And he has revealed to us that we must learn to go another way. The same can be said about Martin King now. He belongs to the ages, and he belongs especially to this age an age drifting once more to its doom. And he has revealed to us that we must learn to go another way. And God grant that we shall choose the highway, even if it will mean assassination, even if it will mean crucifixion, for by going this way we will discover that death would be only the beginning of our influence. Amen.